Will you take your Bibles with me to open to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 to 32. I believe this is the first time I've ever um, preached this passage uh, on the Lord's Supper. I don't know why, but uh, definitely um, first time for me. Uh, so would you would you pray with me, Father? I, I we come to you in this new year um, with our hopes um, and dreams that God that um, we will be with you this year. God, not just to be present uh, with uh, those who have lost, but Lord, uh, be present with you, our Savior and our King. God, today, this morning, Lord, as we um, talk about the Lord's Supper, may, may we have a sense of weightiness of um, what you expect from us when we gather around your table. That it's not simply a table, um, but God, it's what brings us all together in, in you. So, Lord Jesus, I, I pray that uh, you will teach us this morning, Holy Spirit, that it is you who will convict our hearts, and it will you that will change our hearts. It will be you that will be honored uh, this morning, God. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. There's something about a meal uh, that can make you feel right at home or just the opposite. A uh, few things are more comforting than a home-cooked food with loving family or friends, and a few things make you feel like more of a stranger than eating food you've never heard of with people you've never met in place in whose customs are a mystery to you. How many of you guys have been on a mission trip? How many of you guys have been on a mission trip? You guys have been on a mission trip, right? And a mission trip is not your culture. It's somebody else's culture, right? So imagining sitting there and, and you know, as a host, they will serve you their cultural food. Right? It's not pizza. It's not uh, McDonald's. It's not KFC. It's it's their food. Right? But what do you do? What do you do if you don't eat what's in front of you? It'll be rude in many countries. Right? So what do you have to do? You have to eat it. You don't get to ask, hey, what's in this? Right? If something's crawling on the on the on the on the plate, you don't get to ask, hey, what's crawling? No, you just pick it up and, and you golf it with water. <laughs> you know, that's kind of what you do. Right? But but I, I've been in many churches and, and, and celebrate communion in, in many different ways, but one thing they have all had in common was the table. There's always seems to be a communion table. They may come in different sizes and styles, some simple, some fancy, some decorative, some plain, but there's almost always a table. You, you might wonder what is the significance of this table that holds the elements of communion, the bread and the cup. It is significant because a table is a place where we get together, it's a place where we gather together, often to share a meal. So, so a table is not absolutely necessary for communion, but it's good to remember that the first communion took place around a table, in a particular dinner table. That, that's why the Bible calls communion both the Lord's Supper and, and the Lord's Table. So as we take a closer look at the Lord's Table and its significance, I pray this morning, I really did have prayed for you, that you will change the way you think about the Lord's Supper. I, I don't know about you, how many of you have taken the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. You just took it without thinking anything more of it. Without even, even examining yourself. You just kind of just took it for, for the sake of just taking because everybody else is taking it. You know, I'm, I'm so glad that uh, we saw how he's an elder because um, uh, there's just times where I just can't take the table. You know, there's just such unresolved um, sin in my life and conflict in my life that uh, I'm not just so willing to surrender. And and yet we yet I, I take such uh, weightiness to, to what I'm doing because there's such judgment behind it. So when we look at this table, we look at it, it's like, yeah, it, it's really good. 
to see that I could, someone will see me take the cup and, and the bread and, and make me feel spiritual. You know, when I was a kid, um, when we did Lord's Supper, they used real bread. And the bread was really good. <laughs> right? So after service, me and my friend said, let's go. Let's go get the more divine and, and really that awesome bread. And so we'll, right after, we will go in the back and take that bread and munch on it. Then I realized that, man, how much judgment did I bring to myself? <laughs> you know? And, and so when we look at this, I want us to think of three things. The, the Lord's table is a place to remember Jesus. That's the point number one. Number two, it's a place to celebrate God's forgiveness and grace. Number three, it's a place to celebrate with a church body. And number four, it's a place to participate in mission and anticipate his return. So if you're taking notes on our app, that's, that's the heading. Um, first of all, a place to remember Jesus. Remember his suffering. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. The first thing Paul tells us that this instruction has, to, has come from the Lord to him and then to the churches. He makes it absolutely clear that what he is teaching here is not his own opinion, but God's revealed word. Then he reminds them that Jesus instituted this ordinance on the night when he was betrayed. It was on that Thursday night. That Passover night that Jesus instituted the new, this new memorial. The next day would be the day that, that, um, that of course, Jesus was taken and, and crucified. And on Friday, um, and, and on Sunday, to rise again. Most scholars agree that the epistle to, to the Corinthians probably was written before any of the four Gospels. So if that is true, Paul's account here is the first biblical record of the institution, the Lord's Supper, and it included a direct quotation from Jesus himself. It is perfectly consistent with the gospel accounts, but Paul's revelation most likely received from the Lord directly, not through other apostles, even though the terms here speak of a chain of tradition that had come from the Lord to Paul and then to the Corinthians. So this is the first Biblical record of the institution of the Lord's Supper. In verse 24b, he said, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul tells us next that as we take the bread that has been broken, the word this means in context, this bread that Christ held in his hand was a symbol to represent his incarnate body, his God-man body, not his actual body as some hold. The bread that had represented the Exodus now came to represent the body of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. You see, the Jewish mind, the body represented the whole person, not, not just his physical body. So Jesus' body represented his humanity, his whole teaching, his whole ministry, and his whole work. All that he did. But we should especially remember his physical suffering in the body. We should remember his agony of prayer at the garden and his unlawful arrest in the middle of the night. We should remember his unfair trial and the false accusation brought against him. We should remember the betrayal of Judas, Peter's denial and his disciples abandoning him at his greatest need. We should remember the brutal treatment he received in the hands of the soldiers. How many of you here have a hard time watching the passion of the Christ? How many of you guys here have a hard time? I had such a hard time the first time I saw it. Cringe. How many of you guys now, when we see it, still feel the same way? And when we think about this, we should really remember the brutal treatment he received in the hands of the soldiers. You guys remember the mocking? Remember the blindfolding? The spitting? The, the beating? The beating with, with, with a fist slap in the face? The, the crown thorns push into his skull? 
Don't you remember the whipping and, and the scourging by the guards? The, the carrying of the cross? The, the nailing of the hands and the feet? But, but I believe that the words of Christ's suffering were hidden from us. I believe the greatest suffering Jesus experienced was a spiritual suffering. All of us could think of the, the, the physical suffering in which he did. But how about the spiritual suffering that he experienced? As he suffered the penalty for sin and experienced the wrath of God and was forsaken by God. Remember one of the cries of the cross? He, he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In all throughout the Gospels, you see him directing God as his father. He said, he, he said my father, my father, my father. But here, he says, my God, my God. I want you guys to think about this. From all eternity, because God has no beginning. They've always been together. They've always been together. And for this moment, they were separated You know how much suffering that is? That is suffering, isn't it? Imagine that fellowship that was broken. That fellowship between the, the father and his son finally broken. For that moment. And that was strange for the Trinity to, to have done that. But Jesus said, I must suffer. I must be forsaken. I must be separated. Jesus broke bread and told his disciples, which is for you. Would you look at these two words for a moment and, and just personalize this? He says this. This is my body, which is for you. For you. This is not for anybody else, but this is for you. Who are you? Can I ask you, who are you? Who are you for the Son of God, for the God King, to leave his home, to be separated from his Father, to, be, to suffer not only physical suffering, but spiritual suffering, which is for you? Do you ever question how much God loves you? Don't ever question it. Because God loves you so, so much. That's why he said, which is for you. For you. Not for anybody else, but for you. Just think about that for a moment. That the Son of God, His body, Spirit, suffered for you. So beautiful. I didn't think about it until this week. This is this two words are probably one of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture, which is for you. Jesus gave his body probably one of the most amazing sacrifices. Jesus gave his, his entire incarnate life for us who believe in him. In, in Matthew 26, 28, Jesus says, For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, our gracious, loving, merciful God become man not for himself, but for us. Whether a person wants to receive the benefit of the sacrifice of, of his or her choice, but Jesus made it and offers it for every person. In other words, Jesus is saying, I became a man for you. I gave the gospel to you. I suffered for you. I was forsaken for you. I died for you. All for you. You know, I love this song. Um, above all, uh, I love the chorus of the song. It says, crucified, laid behind a stone. You live to die, rejected and alone, like a rose trampled in the ground. You took the fall and thought of me above all. You know, I was thinking about this this morning, and, and I was thinking about the first cry of the cross, the first saying of the cross. As, as, as they were pull, pulling Jesus from the ground with, with, with a wooden cross, as they were pulling him, how many guys would say, ouch? 
But how many guys will say, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do? Remember the first words after they, they nailed his hands and they took him from the ground and lifted him off. And he said, forgive them, Father. At that point, Jesus put you above all, above himself which is for you. So when someone asks me, why do you love Jesus? And how could I not love Jesus? Because he was for me. How could I not obey Jesus? It's because, which is for me. How could I not do what he's will? It's because it's for me. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we remember his sufferings. We remember not just physical suffering, but we remember the spiritual suffering. Secondly, we remember in the other being, remember his death on the cross. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Secondly, we should remember Jesus' death on the cross. We read that after he gave his disciples the bread, the cup is a reminder of Jesus' death. It is a symbol of his Jesus' blood poured out in death on the cross. Also, the cup that represented the lamb's blood smeared on the doorpost in Exodus and lentils now came to present the blood of the lamb of God shed for the salvation of the world. So the pouring out of the blood in the Bible is always a symbol of violent death. So the cup is a reminder not only that he died, but that he was killed. You see, Jesus did not die of old age or accident or illness. He was executed for a crime he did not commit. He was killed in the most brutal and painful methods known to man. He experienced nerve damage from the nails, hunger, thirst, exhaustion, and slow suffocation on the cross. He was killed. He was executed. In our day, if, if, if there was a symbol of, of the cross, it would be the electric chair. Jesus would put an electric chair or, or injected a lethal injection. He had the death penalty. You see, the old covenant required a sacrifice of animals as prescribed by the law. But God made a new covenant with us in Jesus. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. It only happened once. The... the Jesus was the final sacrifice for sins, and whoever puts their faith in him is forgiven. The new covenant symbolizes the new deliverance is from sin to salvation, from death to life, from sins controlled to God. Colossians would speak about this in 13. The Passover was transformed into the Lord's Supper. So we now eat the bread and drink of the cup, not to remember the Red Sea or the Exodus, but to remember the cross to remember the Savior. The cup is a reminder of all of this. The, the, when we take the cup in, in a little while, when we take this cup, do you know that this cup is, is the symbol of what Hebrews 9 says, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin? So when you take the cup, it symbolizes that your sins are forgiven. That's what it symbolizes. Number two, the Lord's Supper is a place that celebrates God's forgiveness and grace. Thank God for the forgiveness of sins. Thank God. Praise God. The Lord's table, verse 24 says here, and when he had given thanks, the Lord's table is not only a place to remember Jesus, but a place to give thanks. What if communion was only about remembering his suffering and death? then that would make communion a pretty depressing time, isn't it? Yet there is a solemn side to communion. But it's also a time of celebration. Because Colossians 1.14 says, In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We were once separated from God because of our sins, but Christ died so that we might be forgiven. That's why we celebrate, right? Yes, there's a time where we, we, we examine our hearts and to see how rebellious and disobedient we are and sinful and fallen. 
But when we come across this table and you look at the cross and you say, God, thank you for your forgiveness. Have you ever done that? When you come to this table, that you will just look at the cross behind me and just simply say thank you. Just simply say thank you. Because the, the cross behind me symbolizes that your sins are forgiven. Past, present, and future. Is that worthy of our thanks? Isn't it? Because once we realize that once we were separate from God because of our sins, but Christ died so that you and I may be forgiven. So communion is a time to thank God for the forgiveness of sins. <coughs> Before Jesus gave them the bread and the cup, he gave thanks. As we do the physical act of eating and drinking, we're to do the mental act of remembering. That is, we're to constantly call to mind the person of Jesus as the, that he once lived in the work of Jesus as he once died and rose again, that what his work means for the forgiveness of our sins. It is this conscious directing of the mind back into history to Jesus and what we know about him from the Bible. Will you thank God the Father for his great love in sending Christ? Thank God? Will you say thank God? Will you thank God the Son for laying down his life for you? Thank God? Will you thank God the Holy Spirit for coming into your life and washing you clean? Will you thank God for the forgiveness of your sins? Psalms. The psalmist beautifully says that our sins will not be remembered no more as far as the east is from the west. I want you to think about this. He didn't say north or south, did it? Because eventually if you go south, you will end the come to an end, and we'll end up going what? North. But east and west never what? Never meets. Imagine your sins. When God says, I forgive your sins, as far as the east from the west, meaning it is infinite, that your sins will be forgiven infinitely. It will never meet. I will never recall it. How many of you guys would say, mm, estimately, I've, I've sinned a thousand times in my life? Just an estimate. A thousand. All right? I could go lower, but I don't think. I think that's a good base, right? You think a thousand is good base? How about two thousand? A day. <laughs> how about, how about three thousand a day? A higher? Oh, whew. you need to take this Lord's Supper twice. <laughs> so, so I just, want, I just want to tell you, right? I mean, think about the number of sins that you and I committed. And God says, I will infinitely forgive that as far as the east from the west. How about this thought before I move on? How many of you guys are scared of judgment? Just scared of it. How many of you guys are scared that you will face God? How many of you guys have this mindset? Sorry, let me back up. How many of you guys have this mindset that when you face God, that there's a Blu-ray disc of your life? How many of you guys have a fear of that? A Blu-ray disc of your life, and it talks about all the days of life that you sinned, and there's a video of it. All right? How many of you guys have ever, ever scared that? How many of you guys are scared to face God with a Blu-ray player? Bring richest, richest, Richard Jow's life, bring it in, let's all poster it. I had this preacher once that told me that, that uh, I will stand before God in this big stadium, and then there's like this big screen, and it will play my life. And then, and then you say, oh, how long is my life? Well, heaven is eternal life, eternal. Can you imagine? And yet, that's a wrong theology. Do you know that the moment that you believe in Christ, Whatever sins you have done in the past has been forgiven. And whatever the, the sins you're doing in the present is forgiven. And the sins you're about to commit in the future is also forgiven. Praise God. Amen. And here's the most beautiful part of this. How many guys here praise God that he will not, what, recall it back to you? How many guys are glad about that? Amen. Right? He won't, he won't say, oh, on that day, 
On that day, you did it again. None of that exists. Because when God looks at you, he looks at you totally perfect. As if you didn't sin. Ah, marvelous, isn't it? Marvelous. In, in verse 25, it says, Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. So Jesus ends with a command from the lips of our Lord himself, Do this in remembrance of me. Therefore, sharing the Lord's Supper is therefore not an option for believers. It's not. For the Jews to remember means more than simply to bring something to mind, but to recall all that had happened. To truly remember is to go back in one's mind and recapture as much of the reality and the significance of an event or experience as one possibly can. So to remember Jesus Christ and sacrifice on the cross is to relive with him his life, agony, suffering, and death as much as humanly possible. That's why we must have communion on a regular basis if we're to be faithful to the Lord who bought us through an act that we are called to remember. And not to partake of the Lord's Supper is disobedience and a sin. So what do you do? How do you do this? How, how do you relive these moments? You know, I challenge you. Even the, the night before or the morning of, just, just wake up a little bit earlier that day and look through the Gospels. Look through the end of Matthew. Look through the end of Luke and, and, and Mark and, and, and John. They all recorded this, this Lord's Supper, the suffering of Christ. Would you just take a moment just to relive that moment before you take the Lord's Supper? Because when you do, it will bring our heart back to what this, truly, this table really means. See, the Catholics believe that the wine and the bread actually become Christ's physical blood and body. They call it transubstantiation. They don't become the actual physical blood and body of Christ. Not true. The, the Lutherans believe that the bread and the wine remain unchanged, but Christ is spiritually present with the bread and the wine. They call it consubstantiation. But here, we, we agree with Swingley uh, during the Reformation where it's a memorial. It's a memorialism that sees communion as a remembrance of, of what Christ did on the cross. The elements are symbolic and have no literal or mystical connection to Jesus' body. Christ cannot be physically present. See, the, the Catholics will say, you know what? Well, it's, it's really become the physical blood and body of Christ. So what happens when they take communion in the Catholic Church? They crucify Jesus over and over again. Every single week, they crucify him. And the Bible is very clear in the book of Hebrews chapter 8 and chapter 10 that Christ cannot be physically present because he's sitting in the right hand of the Father. That's why he can't be crucified every single week. And then Paul goes to verse 27 to 30. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself, then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Paul wants it to be come to the Lord's Supper in a cavalier, callous, careless way that does not discern the seriousness of what happened on the cross. You may, if you are a believer, lose your life, not because of wrath, but as an act of God's fatherly discipline in your life. He's essentially asking the people to do a heart check before communion because it is very dangerous not to. We celebrate it with a sense of weightiness. And, and let me explain to you this way, how, how, what this is. I have come to this table in, in, in just in a cavalier, callous way and, and not really thinking so much. And even today, I have to fight that. What do I have to fight? I have to fight the, the thought that my concentration is on my sins. I have to fight that. But I was just told that my sins are forgiven. No, I, I need to remember the weightiness of the seriousness of what Christ went through at the cross.
loss. I have to think back through history, what, what my Jesus did for me. I have to think back as I take the Lord's Supper. This is his body that, that was broken at Calvary. That it was his blood that was spilled for the forgiveness of my sins. When, when I think about that and, and what it cost him to forgive my sins, then I should come to the table with such humility. Don't we? Need to come to it with such humility and seriousness and weightiness that this is no cheap meal. That this was an expensive meal. That it cost the Son of God his life. Just so that my sins could be forgiven. And the beauty of the gospel is what? That a sinner like me, a rebellious, disobedient person like me, can be what? At peace with God. And then not only that, but God says, I want you to share that in, in, with me in the table to celebrate that. To celebrate what? To celebrate my love for you. To celebrate that your sins are forgiven. To celebrate that you have peace with God. You celebrate what? That you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's what we celebrate. And then God says, if you, if you don't do it this way, actually, it's better for you not to take it. So if your mind is not about the cross, and your mind is not about your sins being forgiven, don't take it. Because it's unworthy. Rather not be guilty concerning the, blood, the body and the blood of Christ. That's why it says, let a person examine himself. Examine what? Examine what? Examine that we're sinful. Examine that we're not worthy. None of us are here worthy to receive this table, are you? In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 31 to 34, but if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment, but, but other things I will give direction when I come. I can't really unfold all that stuff because of what the Corinthians did, but I, I just want to explain to you that we cannot come to the table with a cavalier and, and careless way without discerning the seriousness of what happened on the cross. Paul here tells us that we may we are to judge ourselves appropriately and allow the Lord to discipline and sacrifice us. Many churches today preface the passing of the elements with two warnings. Don't take communion unless you are a believer. It's too precious a thing to treat uh, uh, as a meaningless religious ritual. Way too precious. And number two, be sure that you're up to the date with God with regarding to any unconfessed sins or unsurrendered areas in your life. But we don't leave it there. You know, we could come to the table and say, man, God, I'm so sorry. Uh, all the, I want to confess all my sins and, and this unsurrendered areas in my life. But we can't stop there because God said, I, your sins are forgiven. There's freedom in that. We constantly need a sense of our sin, absolutely, and a discernment of our failings and a spirit of repentance. We need a godly sword that produces repentance leading to life but not to be regretted as opposed to the sorrow of the world that produces death. The psalmist in Psalms 139, verse 23 and 24 says this, Search me. He says, Search me, O God, and, and know my heart. Try me and, and know my thoughts. Even at this moment, would you search your heart? Would you allow God to search it? He says, search me, oh God. Don't, tell, don't ask your wife or your brother or your sister. Hey, search my heart. They can't. Only God could search your heart. But when we come to the table in humility, God is inviting you, search me, oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me. But before we do that, it says it here, and I love what it says in Psalms 19, verse 12, where it says, forgive my hidden faults. And then verse 24, 
and, and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me to the way everlasting. You know, I'm so glad God put verse 24 in there. Because it says, see if there's any offensive way in me. Have you ever asked God that before? Before you even come to this table? God, is there anything in my life that is offensive to you? I confess it. God, is there anything that breaks your heart? I confess it. God, if there's anything in my thought life that is not good or pure, forgive me. You need to search. You need to ask him to search your heart. This is an invitation for God to clean you out. And then I love what he says. Lead me to a path. You know, Psalms 19. God, I have all these hidden faults I don't even know about. Would you, would you reveal that to me? Because 1 John 1, 9 tells us what? That if we do this, if we confess our sins, God is what? Faithful and just to what? To forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us. And how many of you want to be cleansed? Don't we? Why do we come to the table? Because it's a time that we, what, celebrate what? The, the forgiveness of our sins the, so that we can be clean. So that this, because see, what only, only thing that separates us between God every day is this sin. This fellowship is broken because of our sin. So because in order for us to restore this fellowship with God, God said, confess. Search me, O God, and know my heart. So in essence, when I give you instruction to examine your heart, I'm asking you if you know what communion means. And are you taking the right motive? I'm asking you if, you, um, if you're walking in faith and living in active relation with God. Allowing Him to do His sanctifying work in you. If so, communion is a sobering celebration of Christ and His church. If not, we make it a mockery of the ordinance. Number two, letter B, marvel in God's gracious invitation to come. Matthew 26, 29 says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, it is because Jesus first invited you to share this meal with him as he did with his disciples. God the Father has graciously drawn you to himself and sat you down at the table with his son. Not because of anything righteous that you have done, but simply by his own goodness and grace. Salvation is not by works. It is the gracious gift of God, which is received by faith in Jesus Christ. So the Lord's table is a place of celebration for God's forgiveness and grace. But it's also a celebration of his gracious invitation for you to come to join him at his table. One day we will share this with him personally. He said, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with who? With who? Who's he going to drink this new with? With you. Where? In my father's kingdom. Um, I was reading something preparing for next week's sermon as what happens when, where, where do um, a believer goes after they die? which is next week's sermon. And, and I was thinking, man, you know, they must be enjoying themselves right now. Yeah, I believe so. I believe they're in, 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 in peace with God and uh, in his gentle, loving care. I believe that also. But the, I also believe that that's their soul and their spirit. Uh, but when, when I think about this passage, uh, that I will not drink of this vine, I think this is us all together. We will drink together. They're not ahead of us drinking already this vine with Christ now. He will gather everybody that has believed and we will drink it with him in heaven. Uh, they're, they're not in the prepared place of John 14. Uh, we will come to the kingdom. He will usher in the kingdom together with us. Um, and I'll make that more clear next week. Um, but if you have your Bible, would you... Um, 
just open the book of Revelation chapter 19. Uh, just Revelation 19. Um, you just open there starting in verse 7. Um, I want to tell you where when Jesus said, uh, "I when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, this is expect, exactly where this place is going to be." It says here, um, actually starting in verse six. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of the great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, "Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns." Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I will fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Blessed are those, verse 9, who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I think it's important for us to pause here just for a moment and ask you if you are sure that you are invited to this banquet are you this is a special invitation do you have this special invitation you know what's so great about those who, who we have lost uh, loved ones who have lost uh, through this curse of death and and this wages of death and um is that they got their invitations already they're sure of it i'm sure of it are you sure of it do you have this invitation? Are you absolutely sure that you have this invitation in your heart? Because if you don't have this invitation in your heart, you're not invited. And if you're not invited, you're invited somewhere else. It's not going to be at this supper. It's going to be somewhere else. So even before we walk out of this place, I mean, I have to ask you, I must ask you, are you invited to this supper? Are you? How many of you guys here are looking forward to this supper? Amen. Right? How many of you guys are looking forward to that supper? Right? No matter how good the cook you are or great chef you are, this supper is going to be the best. Right? It's a supper that you'll never gain this way. <laughs> right? And here's the most humbling part of this. Can you imagine our Lord Jesus Christ, the king, will get off his chair and will go around and pull this chair and sit you right there with him. And you will see his hands, the holes in his hands, the holes in his feet. And you will sing, worthy is a lamb, who was slain. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. So I invite you to marvel in God's gracious invitation to come. God did not have to invite you to his table, but he did. Because John 6, 35, 37 says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So that's why it's, so, it's not hard to, to share Christ with others because God has already said, whoever the Father gives to me will come to me. So if you share Christ with someone and they come to Christ, it's because the Father has drawn them near. Only those selected by God can come to the Son and believe in Him. God's Spirit enables them to come. All those who have been invited to come to Jesus and have done so can rest assured that God was at work in their lives. So while the first part of this verse speaks of a collective group of believers, the second part speaks about the individual that I will never reject them. God's Word reassures us 
that Jesus will always welcome the sincere seeker and the seeker who comes to believe will never be rejected. Number three, a place to celebrate with the church body. 1 Corinthians 10, 17. Because there is one bread, he who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. The Lord's Supper is an act of the gathered family of those who believe in Jesus, the church. It is an act for unbelievers. Unbelievers may present, indeed, we welcome them to be present because there is nothing secret about the Lord's Supper. It is done in public. It has a public meaning. It is not secretive. Cultic ritual with magical powers. It is a public act of worship by the gathered church. So when does a church become a church? Yes, you will share the gospel. They will get saved by the gospel. But when does the church become a church? The church becomes a church when it celebrates the Lord's table. That's when it becomes a church. We do it as a church. The, the, the early church in Acts, they got saved. 3,000 of them were saved in one day. And they were what? Baptized. And then they were added to the church. They became members of the church. And then they what? Celebrated the Lord's Supper together. The Lord gave two ordinances. You need to be baptized and you need to partake of the Lord's Supper. You need to be obedient. Those are the first two things that God said you need to obey. See, baptism is this public profession of your faith that I belong to Jesus. Public. And then we come to the table together. Right? We come to the table together to, to celebrate what God has done. See, five times in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul speaks of the church coming together when the Lord's Supper is eaten. Verse 17, when you come together. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church. Verse 20, when you come together. Verse 33, when you come together to eat. Wait for one another. Verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together. This is the body of Christ, the assembly of the followers of Jesus. Those who have turned from idols and trusted Jesus alone for the forgiveness of their sins and for the hope of eternal life and for the satisfaction of their souls. These are Christians. These are believers. These are part of the church. This is the body. See, the participants in the Lord's Supper are the gathered believers in Jesus. Baptism is where faith goes public. The Lord's Supper is a renewal of our commitment. So when we come to the table, it is my commitment that Jesus is not just my Messiah, but he is my Lord and my King. That's why we come to the Lord's table. When people ask me, I'm not ready. When people say, should I get baptized or not? I say, yeah, you should. Because all I have to ask them, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that your sins are forgiven? you believe that he has done this atoning work in you? And then she says, I'm not ready for that. Well, you're not ready for it. You're not ready for your what? Sins to be forgiven? You're not even ready to be redeemed by the blood of his, of his covenant? You're not, you're not ready for what? Well, you're not ready for it. Right? And I'm just going to tell you, in our baptism, there'll be no doves coming out. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you that. We don't have the budget for doves. <laughs> All right, And there's also, the heaven also is not going to open up and tell you, this is my son, who I'm well pleased. Because if it opens up, it will not be well pleased. Right? Baptism is this. It's a public testimony that I belong to Christ, that he is my king. That he has a right to rule in my life. And then when we come to the Lord's Supper, we celebrate that king and what that king did. We celebrate the forgiveness of our sins. We celebrate that how gracious is he in inviting us to his table. So we must do both. Right? Ready for what? I'm not ready to take the Lord's Supper. Yes, you are. Because it's a celebration of our king and what he did. It's a celebration of the church. It's a celebration of our forgiveness. It's a celebration that he's so gracious to us. That's why we come to the table. Isn't that something great to participate in? So be baptized. And then take the Lord's Supper. And become a member of his church. Body of Christ. 
And that's, that's how we do this. You know, we're not, we're not some cults. You know, we're, like, we're not like the Mormons. Sometimes I wish we are because they give 50% of their annual offering in January. Right? But we're not. Number four, a place to participate in mission and anticipate his return. The idea of having memorials for the dead is, is to keep their memories alive. Um, in America, we have the Arlington National Cemetery, uh, the Vietnam Memorial, um, Valley Forge. They're all powerful national reminders of that the, the dead matters. But see, we have a savior who's not, whose body is not resting somewhere in Jerusalem. No, he resurrected on the third day. Amen? Right? He resurrected on the third day from the dead. Amen? No, no, really, really. He resurrected from the dead on the third day. Amen? All right. I just want to make sure that he's alive. He's alive. Who they were and what they did matters to us who follow after, isn't it? As Christians, we have the Lord's Supper, which we use as a memorial every month on the first Sunday of every week. It's a memorial of what Christ has done and what Christ has invited you to and what the body of Christ does. In the Lord's Supper, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, for as often as you eat this bread and drinks the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as long as we are here in the world and in anticipation of Christ's return, we proclaim his death, we proclaim the gospel, we proclaim the Savior, who having conquered sin and death, rose from the grave to give everlasting life to all who believe in him. This is a call not to be ashamed before others of the gospel. Paul was able to preach Christ crucified because all inhibitions had been swept away by his own experience of the gospel as the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. He had come to Christ in faith, therefore he was free to declare the same message to others. That's why I believe the Lord's Supper is a beautiful picture of the gospel. The fact that many of you say that they are believers, but never or hardly share their faith to others, suggests a deeper problem than timidity. I have a real problem with that. I do. Every month, I'm guilty of this too. Every month, I take of this bread, I take of, I take of this body, and is his bread in this cup, and and I think it's just for me. And God said, it's not. You have a duty to do. I want you guys to just see this. Can you just read this with me? Verse 26. Just read this with me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes is a command. It's an imperative command. So if we are going to eat this this morning, and we're going to drink this cup this morning, we are to proclaim his death until he comes. Right? That's a command, right? So if we're not going to do that, if, if you're not going to do that, if you're not willing to share your faith, when the opportunity arise, why should you partake of the bread and the cup? Because he already says, don't take this in an unworthy manner, isn't it? Isn't it? Or judgment will fall on you. So, so if God said, do this in remembrance of me, partake of the bread and the cup, but proclaim my death until he comes. You are an evangelist whether you like it or not. Either you're a bad one or a good one. But you are one. What kind of evangelist are you? And you say, oh, don't call me an evangelist. That's Billy Graham. No. You are an evangelist. Because you know what evangelist means? You share this everlasting life. And you give this gift of everlasting life to someone. That's what you do. You proclaim it. You know, before you take the, the supper day, I brought this one. It's, uh, uh, it's called Husha One. We've been doing this for the past few years. and I'm not asking you to proclaim the two. That's why it says, who's your one, right? One. Because you know what's lower than one? 
What's lower than one? Can you pull math in a little bit? What's lower than one? Zero, right? You can't have zero. You just can't. You've got to have at least have one. Okay, let's take a survey here. How many here here have one unsafe friend? One. One. How many guys here have one unsafe family? One. How many guys here have one unsafe neighbor? One. Right? Unsafe, right? Unsafe. Right? I'm not telling you who's one. You could be picky. You could be prejudiced. Who's your one? But have one. One. One, one person. Before you take this, before we're going to take the cup today, I want you to take this or you download in your app. And what I want you to do is I want you to fill that person's name here. And for the next 30 days, for the next 30 days, you will pray for that someone. How many of you guys here have 12 friends? That combination of friends and family who are unsaved, 12. How many of you guys have less than 12? Can you guys get some friends? <laughs> Just get some 12. 12. Some 12. How many of you guys have 12 combination of friends and family who are unsaved? How many guys here? 12? 12, 12, 12. Going once, going twice? 12. Okay. I'm getting worried about you guys. Really, really getting worried. Okay, you're 12. What if you take one book of this and for, you pray for one for 30 days for every month? 12 people you pray for for the whole year. And that reminds you that his death matters. Because you're proclaiming it as you take the Lord's Supper. There's four things that God says. I mean, in, the, in this book, he says here, you need to what? Just pray. I, I'm just asking you guys to pray. And I want you guys to invest. And what do you mean by invest? What does invest mean? Invest means this. Invest means just do good to them. Okay, don't say, I share the gospel and I don't do anything good about it. No, do something good. It's okay to do something good. It's really good. And then invite them. Church. But most importantly, invite them to receive Jesus. Invite them to be baptized. Invite them to a church. And then repeat it all over again. You know the reason why? And I'll tell you the reason why. Because you must do whatever it takes to Reach the loss. And it starts with one. Whatever it takes. If you look at the next slide, I want you guys to take a picture of what's it, what it looks like. And whatever it takes. This picture is a picture of hell. When people will be thrown down a lake of fire. That's why you need to do whatever it takes. Don't we have a beautiful message? Don't we? Then we have a, the most beautiful message of all. The one could have everlasting life. The one doesn't die, it actually transitions to another life. Isn't that a wonderful news? Isn't it wonderful news that our sins can be forgiven? Isn't it wonderful news that we have peace with God and not war with God? Isn't it wonderful news that we didn't have to earn it? Isn't that wonderful news? Those are all wonderful news, isn't it? Go share it with someone. It's worth it. Their life depends on it. And it starts with you. Will you make a commitment to do this every time you take Lord's Supper? That you will pray for someone? That God will create, you will, you will invest, and God will create an opportunity and a space for you to, to share them the gospel? Let me end with this. Psalm 16, 116, verse 12 to 14, I believe summarizes what it means to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He says, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of my salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Let me invite you to take the Lord's Supper with me. The Jews, may I ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment? Just, just this moment. Can I just ask you, wherever you are, you want to kneel, you want to sit, you want to stand, I don't care. It doesn't matter. What posture you want. Will you remember what he did for you? Will you remember 
Remember the prayer that he had that if this cup could pass from him, he would do it. You remember that he was unlawfully arrested? He was unlawfully tried in the middle of the night? He was unlawfully accused of something he didn't do? Would you remember the soldiers bringing him to a room and and mocking him and spitting at him and beating his face and putting a robe, stripping him naked and putting a robe and, and putting a crown forward, push it in his head. Remember how hurt his feelings were when Judas, one of his one of the twelve, betrayed him. Thirty pieces of silver. We see how emotionally he was when his number one disciple Peter denied him three times. Would you remember how he carried the cross? All the way to Calvary. Remember the weight, how he staggered and fell. Would you remember the, the nails in his hands and on his feet? Would you remember? Would you remember his words at the cross when he lifted him up and said, Father, forgive them? Would you remember what he said last when he said, the telestai, it is finished? Now would you remember the cost that he paid for the forgiveness of your sins? Would you at this moment and just have silence, just ask God to search your heart Search, God, I'm asking you to search our hearts and know our thoughts. Would you do that this moment? Would you reveal any hidden faults from us? Any unsurrendered areas of our lives that we don't want to surrender to you, God? God, I agree with you with what you says about sin. God, I agree with you that our heart is full of discontent. God, that our heart is full of evil. That our eyes, we allow our eyes and our soul Lord, to be influenced and to be disgraced by this world. God, I pray for our heart is deceitful above all things. And God, may we, now we pray, would you ask God now, would he lead you to a path, a way of righteousness? Would, would God lead you away from this? Will he lead you to a path, a direction? 
God leads you to everlasting. God leads you to be about his will and his righteousness. About his kingdom and his righteousness. Would you allow, would you tell God, God lead me to a path? Seek your, your kingdom and your righteousness. And now, God, we want to say thank you. God, we want to say thank you that our sins are forgiven. God, we want to say thank you that we are free from the bondage of sin and death. God, I thank you, Lord, for that we have freedom now in Christ, that we're no longer slaves, but we are free and we are forgiven. Thank you, Lord, for cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Praise Jesus. Praise your King. This moment, uh, I will, as uh, we sing, as we prepare more of our hearts to uh, not just confess our sins, but to celebrate and to thank God for the Lord's Supper. Um, when you're ready, take the elements as we hear the song in, in, in Christ alone. We put our trust.